Good morning. It's 11 minutes before 8 a.m. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. I'm Peter Apathy with Raven News. The Sitka Assembly approved a new airport lease between the city and the state last night, clearing the way for the airport expansion project, which kicked off this week. The city is getting a $45 million federal grant to revamp the airport terminal. But before the project could get off the ground, the city needed to update its lease with the state's Department of Transportation. The city owns the terminal building, but it leases land from the state to operate the terminal. The 55-year lease was set to expire this summer. The city spent months negotiating the terms of the new lease, which includes some changes to airport procedures in order to meet requirements from the Federal Aviation Administration, like additional security and charging airport vendors concession fees. Initially, the additional concession fees were going to be collected by the state, but Municipal Administrator John Leach said he fought for that revenue to stay in Sitka. We were able to work that issue out. So the only change from the draft that you saw late last year and this current draft is uh, those concessions have now been allowed to stay within the, uh, uh, the Sitka's airport terminal fund. Airport parking in Sitka is currently free. Plans to develop a parking fee structure are not included in this lease, but that doesn't mean that change couldn't happen eventually. There's still a lot of work to be done there. My discussions with the state is if they would like to explore how they'd like to manage that lot and if they're able to set up a working system, then then we would entertain that option in the future. Uh, But right now, the the lot still remains under the control of the state. Assemblymember Tor Christensen said he wasn't crazy about the new lease, but the city didn't have many other options. The only alternative is to give the building back to the state and have them run it like they run the ferry service, which uh, is not ideal. So, um, you know, I I know that as we go through this, there's going to be some complaint about stuff. And my answer to that is me too. The Assembly approved the new airport lease unanimously. We'll have more coverage of the Sitka Assembly meeting on Raven News tonight at 518. A hydroelectric project on Admiralty Island over 40 years in the making has won federal funding for construction. Alaska Senators Murkowski and Sullivan announced on Tuesday that almost $27 million from the bipartisan infrastructure bill is headed toward the community of Angoon for the construction of a run-of-river hydro plant on Thayer Creek. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The plans for a hydroelectric project in Angoon go all the way back to the passage of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act in 1980 and the creation of the Admiralty Island National Monument on the ancestral lands of the Angoon Hlingit. Angoon's village corporation, Kutsnuwu Inc., was subsequently granted the right to develop Thayer Creek, but no funding came with it and Angoon's 500 residents have relied on diesel generation ever since, paying somewhere between four and eight times more for electricity than the national average. Over the years, Kutsnavu has pulled together other grants to design Thayer Creek, and finally, last year, the corporation received a permit from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to build it. But the millions of dollars needed to construct the project were still not there. The passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law in 2021 included $1 billion for energy improvements in rural and remote areas, 
called ERA, and this looked like Kutznuwu's chance. Kutznuwu's Director of Natural Resources, John Wunro, spoke to KCAW last August. This is really the first and potentially the only funding of this size specifically for rural areas to do renewable energy. So it's kind of got Thayer written all over it, so we're, we're hopeful. Thayer Lake is a runoff river project. That is, there won't be a huge dam built and reservoir created. It will produce 850 kilowatts of power, roughly three times Angoon's current needs, allowing Angoon, as one row put it, to usher in an era of electric motors, electric cars, electric boats, and heat pumps. The project will be operated by the Inside Passage Electric Cooperative. The funding announced for Angoon is part of a $125 million package of ERA infrastructure money for clean energy projects in four other areas in Alaska, Chignik Bay, the Northwest Arctic Borough, the Yukon River, and Old Harbor. Alaska received the largest share of ERA funding in the infrastructure bill. In a news release, Senator Lisa Murkowski thanked Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm for, quote, choosing more projects and awarding more funding to Alaska than any other state. These investments will create jobs, reduce emissions, and increase the use of renewable resources while decreasing electricity bills. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. An Alaska Native group says the Canadian government is violating their human rights by greenlighting several large gold mines in British Columbia. A coalition of tribes in southeast Alaska submitted a brief last week to an international commission accusing Canada of the violations, including their right to a healthy environment. KRBD's Jack Darrell has more. At the mouth of the Yunuk River near Ketchikan, there's a very old petroglyph. According to Lee Wagner of Metlakatla, the rising sun painted onto the rock above the river is thousands of years old, and it's a family crest. I have had ties with that river since the day I was born, and my parents before me, generation after generation. That river, to us, it means life. Further up the river, over the Canadian border, there's a site proposed for an open-pit gold mine. It's one of multiple large-scale mining projects proposed on Canadian soil that Alaska tribes say would directly impact watersheds that run across the border into Alaska. And the tribes have long demanded a seat at the table in how Canada manages those projects. The tribal coalition is known as the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission, or SEITC. Guy Archibald's the executive director. He says the Yunuk River case is interesting because the line he's heard from mining companies that they can minimize the impact their operations have on the watershed doesn't work here. And, and mining is known to impact water quality and salmon. They always do. Uh, modern mines actually fail at a higher frequency and with more catastrophic consequences than mines 40, 50 years ago. And some of these are the largest mines that will ever be built in the world. And there was already a mine at SK Creek along the Yunuk River in the 90s. And Archibald says the watershed is still feeling the effects over a decade after the mine shuttered. You know, the people using that river, such as Lee's family, noticed a very distinctive drop-off in the hooligan coming in. Hooligan are not like salmon. They will, they will go somewhere else if there's adverse conditions. He says when the mine closed in 2007, the population of hooligan, a beloved subsistence fish, began to rebound, however slightly. 
The once productive Ooligan fishery in the Unuk River has been closed by the State Department of Fish and Game for years because of population concerns. For Archibald, gold mines mean only two things. Jewelry and its investment. You know, 93% of all the gold is either vanity, it's uh, back up to your investments in the dollar and the stock market, you know, in case something goes wrong. So it's vanity and fear. It needs to just stay in the ground. And he says the fight comes down to economics. Sacrificing salmon and cultures with all the language and art. Economics never pencil out if uh, ecology is the price that you pay. The economics will never pencil out. So now the SEITC, in partnership with Earth Justice, a legal advocacy organization, have taken their concerns to the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, which presides over the defense of human rights across North and South America. And there's a precedent for this. In 2020, the SEITC submitted a petition to the international body on Canada's alleged human rights violations, and last September, the commission accepted it. That started the clock for the tribal group and Canada to both make their cases. This brief outlining their argument is SEITC's first official filing to the commission since the original petition. And May Manipupat Pong, an Earth Justice attorney, says their argument is twofold. She says Canada is violating the tribe's federally recognized right to a healthy environment as well as violating their obligation to consult with tribal stakeholders. They also have an obligation to obtain the free, prior, and informed consent um, of SCITC tribal members and make sure that they are um, participating in the decision-making processes um, and have a voice in whether these mines be authorized or not. Mary Pupat Pong says the merits of their case are strong. Toxic water pollution doesn't stop at the Canadian border. And human rights obligations don't either. The brief includes evidence that the SEITC has reached out to the Canadian and B.C. governments for years, to no reply. The Canadian government did reach out to SEITC, though, through the mining companies. Guy Archibald says one of the mining companies contacted SEITC and offered to guide them through the process. Not once in the letter did they say, listen to us, or things along that line. The mining companies listed in the brief haven't responded to KRBD's multiple requests for comment. The Canadian and B.C. governments are required to submit a similar brief in the coming weeks. Afterwards, the Inter-American Commission will decide if there will be a hearing. In Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. Governor Mike Dunleavy cast doubt on the future of a bill that would boost state education funding and implement other reforms on Monday, shortly after the Senate sent the bill to his desk. The bill would increase the base per-student state funding to school districts by $680, the first substantial increase since 2016. In a social media post on Monday, Dunleavy said the bill, quote, falls far short of improving outcomes for students. But Dunleavy did not say specifically whether he would veto the bill. And that's all for Raven News for this hour. You can listen to or read our stories again on our website at kcaw.org.